there. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Who explained? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Maybe. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. Y'all got your mail-in ballots in up there in Oregon? Out in Pennsylvania on 93FM WLRI in Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1FM. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and many other fine affiliates, including five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another action-packed, thrilling adventure. And uh, we will see. It just may be today. And, and and just to start off with something positive here, before everything goes south, as it is wont to do on the broadcast from time to time uh in our in our last uh, in our previous thrilling episode we talked we had some good news uh, about germany and about the, the fact that germany uh, well, Desi Doyen, you helped me tell this story. Okay. 90%, wasn't it? 90%? Yes. Germany was able yeah. to meet 90% of their electricity demand with renewable energy, with right. uh, solar, with wind energy, with hydropower from hydroelectric dams and from biomass. And it took place just uh, over a, a day or two, over a weekend, I think a week or so ago. It was good news. It didn't last forever, but demand is low on the weekends. Uh, but overall, very good news, certainly for Germany, certainly when it comes to solar, because we hear these climate deniers in this country claiming that, uh, oh, well, gosh, we can't do it. We can't. Germany can do it, maybe, because they have all that sunshine <laughs> up there uh, uh, in those northern climes. But we could never do it. here. Of course, they don't have that much sunshine. We have way more sun here in the U.S. than they do. Right. So that was that was the good news then, 90 percent. And now over the weekend. What, even better news? Yes, apparently they were now able to generate 100% of their electrical demand from renewable energy on a Sunday, a day of low demand, but a very sunny and windy day. So it was very cool for Germany to prove that, hey, yeah, it can be done. Now, does that include, when they say 100% from renewables, does that include nuclear? Because I no. think they still have uh, nuclear power in Germany. They do still have nuclear power in Germany. They are phasing it out as part of a national agenda that everybody agreed to, to phase out nuclear energy, but no, this was not including nuclear energy. This was just renewable sources. Nuclear is clean. It is not renewable. And so what about those people who say, well, Germany is not that big of a country? 
the U.S. is a way bigger country. It would be impossible. We could not do here what they do in Germany. The U.S. is a way bigger country, but yes, we absolutely can do the 100% electrical demand being met by renewable energy. It, it requires a more flexible electrical grid than we have right now, and even Germany had a bit of a problem with that as well over the weekend um, because coal-fired power plants and nuclear pa- plants cannot ramp up and down in response to quick demand. So basically, the nuclear and coal plants had to sell electricity, pay people to take their electricity because they couldn't they couldn't match the uh, the quickness, the speed, and the clean energy that was being generated by the solar and wind. Where there is a will, there is a way, I yeah. guess. And there is a, way, a will in Germany. Doesn't seem like we have that same will here in these United States. But hey, we're working on it. Getting uh, there. Yeah. And thank you, Desi Doyen, for that uh, good news. It's all downhill from here. Uh, coming up, uh, also, some uh, some kind of crazy goings-on. You heard a bit of it at the top of the show there at the, uh, the Democratic State Convention in Las Vegas over the weekend. This was the Nevada uh, State Democrats. They had their uh, convention uh, to finalize the delegates who would be going to the National Convention in Philadelphia in July. Uh, this it all resulted in uh, the state's uh, sheriffs having to, uh, the county sheriffs having to come in to officially shut down the event at the ballroom at the Paris Hotel in Vegas, uh, leaving Sanders supporters very, very angry about the outcome. I will try to make sense of what went on over the weekend at the Nevada Democratic State Convention shortly. Uh, though no guarantees that I'll be able to make much sense of it. Uh, but first, remarkable and unprecedented stonewalling by congressional Republicans to even entertain the idea of following the U.S. Constitution by holding advice and consent hearings for Judge Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee to fill the seat of the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in February, continues to have reverberations in our nation's courts and for some of the most contentious legal issues of the day right now. In an unusual three-page, I guess I should call it non-opinion opinion issued on Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to not decide at all on a case that has been of key interest to longtime opponents of the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, as well as to women in general, as it may result in insurance coverage for contraception options as uh, guaranteed by the Affordable Care Act being taken away from many of those women due to so-called religious liberties objections being claimed by some religious-based employers. But the case uh, in question here, Zubik v. Burwell, which was otherwise expected to be de- to be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court this year, will not be decided by them after all, at least not now, at least not in this session. In the wake of Scalia's death in February and the Republican majority Senate's uh, vow to not fill his seat until a new president is elected, the court now seems to be going out of its way to find inventive new ways to avoid four to four split decisions that would essentially leave standing whatever lower court rulings have been made prior to the case getting to the high court and resulting in cases where different federal appellate circuit courts have have come to differing opinions about the same federal laws, resulting in those laws being enforced differently depending on which area of the country one happens to live in. Yes, it is all very confusing. And that is just one of the reasons 
why it's necessary to fill the seat of the late Justice Scalia one way or another so that order can be restored to the judicial and legal chaos that uh, seems to be occurring when when different lower courts come to different conclusions about the law. Arguably, that is why we have a Supreme Court in the first place, to make sense of those differing lower court opinions. But now, it seems, Republicans who are not satisfied with breaking the other two branches of government are dead set on breaking the judicial branch as well, at least until they can get their way and they can have a majority of justices on the Supreme Court who will decide cases the way they want them decided on the nation's highest court. Here to discuss today's unusual non-opinion opinion in Zubik v. Burwell is our old friend Ian Milheiser, who writes about uh, this story today, this case today at Think Progress Justice, in an article headlined, Scalia's Death Just Saved Thousands of Women's Access to Birth Control. Ian is, of course, the constitutional law expert, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and the editor of Think Progress Justice. His writings have appeared in The Times, New York Times, L.A. Times, U.S. News, World Report, everywhere else. Uh, and uh, his first book, published just last year, is Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian Milheiser, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. Always great to have you here to uh, make sense of uh, what is becoming a stranger and stranger session, I think, of the Supreme Court this year. Uh, before we get into, uh, or at least try to make sense of what the eight Supreme Court justices did today. I think we need a quick reminder of what happened in the Hobby Lobby case a year or two ago and how the suggested accommodation from that case made by uh, right-wing Justice Sam Alito, as I recall, how that brought us to where we are in the Zubik case. What did Hobby Lobby decide initially? And then we can discuss how it resulted in in the Zubik case that the Supreme Court uh, went out of their way to not decide today. Right. So, okay, so there's some background that I think is useful here. The Affordable Care Act says that insurance companies shall provide a minimum standard of preventive care Mm -hmm. for everyone, but they don't define what that is. They they delegate that to the Department of uh, Health and and Human Services. Mm -hmm. And HHS came up with a whole list of types of preventive care that need to be covered, vaccines, um, various early childhood treatments, um, and then, you know, one thing that is listed, you know, cancer screenings are listed, and then one thing that's listed is contraceptive care. Mm-hmm. So it's, one, it's part of a laundry list of medically necessary treatments, or at least, you, you know, med- of, like, medically recommended preventative care treatments right. um, that, um, that are covered under these regulations. Okay. Originally... Um, the way that the Obama administration did is they essentially had two tracks for contraception. So for for-profits, um, you just had to, you, you were required to include it, um, to include contraception in your employer-provided plan, just like you would include anything else. And for many non-profits, they got an exemption where they could fill out a form and then they wouldn't have to do it, and then there was a sort of a sidetrack to make mm-hmm. sure that the women who worked for that company still got contraception. Okay. Hobby Lobby struck down the, the rule for for-profits. It struck down the rule saying that, you ha- that certain companies, even if they had a religious objection, 
had to um, provide contraception in their plans. But it spoke, you know, fairly glowingly about the nonprofit rule. And so what the Obama administration said was, okay, if you, Supreme Court, think that this nonprofit rule is fine, that's what we'll do. And turn around two years later, and the conservative justices who previously seemed to think that the nonprofit rule was great Mm -hmm. now think it's not good enough, and that's what the Zubik case was about. And and so when Hobby Lobby was decided, basically they were saying that uh, we're a privately held uh, company and we disagree with contraception entirely, and so we're not going to supply it to uh, to our employees. And the accommodation that was found coming out of that case was that, okay, in cases like that, all they have to do, all I guess Hobby Lobby has to do, even though they're a for-profit corporation, is basically opt out, is is sign a, 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 a form basically saying that we are not going to supply uh, contraceptive care to our employee to our employees. And therefore, in those cases, the insurance companies have to pay for that coverage for the women, the contraceptive contraceptive coverage. But those women still get it. Is that right? Uh, or at least they're supposed to under that accommodation. Is that right. correct? Yeah, that, okay. that is more or less correct. I, I mean, there's there's a little bit of uncertainty because different co- companies provide mm-hmm. um, health benefits to their workers in different ways, and there's a bit of nuance mm-hmm. depending on whether someone has a regular insurance plan, whether they self-insure, mm-hmm. and you know, so there's some technical nuance there that matters a lot to. Um, the outcome of some of these cases, but that's more or less correct. You know, what the current rule says Mm -hmm. is the current rule says that if you don't have a religious objection to birth control, great, just include it in your your health plan. Mm -hmm. If you do have a religious objection, fill out this form, or if you don't want to fill out the form, send us a letter saying that you have a religious objection, and then, you know, a side deal is worked out with the insurance company so that the insurance company will then provide a contraceptive, will, will, will still provide contraceptive coverage on the side to that employer's, um, to, to the women who work for that employer. Right. Um, so it should be a win-win. The employer gets out of having to do what it doesn't want to do. The women who work for the employer still get, um, still get contraceptive care. Um, and that, you know, that, that should have solved the problem. The problem is that you have this group of employers who are now the plaintiffs in the Zubik case, mm-hmm. um, who aren't willing to take yes for an answer. <laughs> they're, they're essentially arguing that by opting out somehow, they are actually opting in, that they are giving their approval for the use of contraception, I guess, by, uh, and, and let me know if I understand this correctly, by, by them saying, no, we're not going to supply uh, contraception in our, in our care, in our insurance uh, plan. Therefore, that begins a process where the contraception coverage is uh, handled by the insurance companies themselves. Therefore, these religious-based employers are saying that by opting out, they are giving their improve, uh, approval to give contraception to these women. Is, am I understanding that in general correctly? Yeah, I mean, what, what their argument is, they're saying that if they take any action that sets in motion a chain of events that leads to some woman using contraception, then, like, they are somehow complicit in it, and that's not allowed. <laughs> and therefore, you know, they just, they refuse, they refuse even to, to opt out. So they refuse even to say no, right. because they're afraid that if they say no, 
that will set in motion a chain of events that le- that ends in some woman taking a birth control pill. Somewhere. Okay. All right. So now Zubik was, if I recall correctly, this was one of the cases. Wasn't this one of the first cases to have oral argument after the death of Scalia back in February? I mean, it was within a month. I mean, okay. there, there, there were quite a few. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was. I mean, there just have, you know there hasn't been that many cases right. since, since since Scalia died. Yeah. But, but it was argued. Okay, it was argued after Scalia died. So we already knew we had an eight-person court at that time hearing this case, mm-hmm. and I guess the speculation was uh, that that it could result in a four-to-four split. Uh, but before that happened, just I think uh, days after the oral arguments, the court put out an unusual request. And I think this was the last time we had you on the show, Ian. Uh, they had put out an unusual request uh, from from the uh, 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 petitioners and the government asking them to to what provide papers, uh, uh, briefings for a right. possible compromise in the case. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the court, you know, I must have been clear after they met for their conference that they were split four to four mm-hmm. and. Um, and they didn't want that because that would lead to a ton of chaos because you'd have different rules in different parts of the country. Uh-huh. Um, and so they tried to broker this compromise. And the compromise was really just a small tweak to the rule. The, the, the compromise was that instead of filling out the form, now all that the employer has to do is just tell their insurance company, hey, we don't want birth control in our plan. And once they do that, the insurance company will then on its own work with the women who work for that employer to give them birth control. Um, And, you know, so the court was asking whether that was a workable solution. And the answer answer to the question turns out to be sometimes. You know, it it turns out that for certain kinds of employers it will work. Um, For certain kinds of other employers it probably will not work. Um, And so that brings us to where we are today. Right. Where we we got this opinion from the Supreme Court that rather than deciding the case, just says, well, like, we just got these really confusing briefs from the parties, and you know what? Let's send these down to some lower courts and let them figure out what to do with them. So, um, so they so didn't even decide. They said, we are absolute, we're not deciding this case in any way. Right. We're just going to let the lower courts go work through these potential, uh, this potential compromise scenario uh, that was submitted by the, uh, by the petitioners and the government? Well, I mean... Let's be clear on what the justices are really doing here. What the justices are really doing is they're saying, okay, like, all of you lawyers and all of you employers and all of you litigants who are involved in this case, go talk to these other judges and go jump through some hoops for a while. Go spend a year, maybe a year and a half jumping through some hoops. And when you're done jumping through those hoops, come back to us. And hopefully at that point there'll be a ninth justice and we can decide this case. Um, I mean, it, it is... It, 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 it is solely a delay tactic. You know, the, the idea is that this makes the cases kick around in the lower courts for a little while, and chances are, you know, some of the lower courts will say that uh, that the rules are are legal, and right. some of them will say with that, that that they aren't legal, and then it will come back to the Supreme Court again. And, you know, hopefully at that point there will be another justice, and then that justice will decide the case. 
it's kind of amazing. Are, are you familiar with any similar case like this where they would, I mean, we, we know they try to uh, decide cases on as narrow grounds as possible so to so as to affect right. as little, uh, you know, federal law as needed in each case. But have we ever seen a case like this where they said, ah, you know what, uh, you guys go work it out. We're not deciding either way. You guys go work it out and see if you can come back to us. We'll deal with this down the road in a year after we have a full right. nine anything like that in in history that you know of yeah i mean if that's not the role that the supreme court's only supposed to fill i mean trial judges uh-huh. you know often like when you bring your initial suit um a trial judge will try to act as a mediator between the two parties and try to get them to settle or the trial judge might like appoint a mediator mm-hmm. like at, you know at that early stage like you know that sort of stuff does go on you know you know feeling mm-hmm. around for a compromise. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to the Supreme Court, the you know, you don't go you don't make it to the Supreme Court unless it's pretty clear that you have a conflict and you know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's just not the justice's role to try to feel around for a compromise. You know, the the flip side of that is that we're supposed to have an odd number of justices. Right. And when you don't have an odd number of justices, the Supreme Court can't fulfill its its key role because there's going to be a lot of cases that it can't decide. And so this case was, I guess, it was accepted uh, for, before the court when they did have nine justices, right? This was accepted when they had when they had nine justices. Yeah, and it's worth noting that since the Supreme Court, since Scalia died, the court has drastically slowed down. Like it's taking far fewer cases than it normally would have taken at this point. And frankly, none of them are particularly interesting. Like, you, you know, they're, they're not taking very many cases, and they seem to be avoiding really contentious cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think the Supreme Court is going to become less and less of an entity. Um, and what that means is that, you know, a lot of lower courts are going to decide cases. They're not going to be, you know, they're going to conflict. Yeah. And there's going to be no one who can resolve the conflict. When you had you you wrote in your piece at uh, at Think Progress on Monday that if conservative Justice Antonin Scalia had not died last fab- February, it is all but certain that the case would have ended in a crushing defeat for the administration and for many women who hope to benefit from the administration's birth control rules. So, again, uh, I guess another benefit, uh, at least to progressives, of uh, from the death of Antonin Scalia, even though it's leading to confusion. Uh, in the lower courts, I'm wondering, Ian, uh, this this suggested compromise, which, by the way, seems incredibly reasonable. Basically, uh, as as uh, as I understand it, and as you describe it, if you're a an employer with a religious uh, disagreement with with this type of with contraception, you basically you buy insurance that doesn't include contraception, and that's it. That sends the signal that it needs to be supplied uh, uh, to these women in another way, and they don't ever have to do another thing, these employers with this religious objection. But in truth, I'm wondering, is, is there any way that such a compromise accommodation could possibly be struck that would appease the folks uh, who are behind this, uh, behind these cases, this is a number of cases, I guess, have been combined, because it doesn't seem to me that this was ever 
I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm going out on a line, a, uh, you know, out on a limb here, but it doesn't seem like this yeah. was actually a religious liberties issue. It seems a case that has right. been brought by Obamacare opponents, period, looking for ways to yeah. damage the law any way they could dream up. So, so in fairness to these particular plaintiffs, mm-hmm. these particular plaintiffs seem to be happy with this particular compromise. Mm-hmm. The problem with this particular compromise isn't that these particular plaintiffs might not agree to it. It's that, first of all, we don't know what the next set of plaintiffs are going to do, mm-hmm. and we don't want to be perpetually litigating this. But second of all, like, it's not clear that the compromise is legal in certain instances. Um, you know, in the Justice Department's brief, it explains that, yeah, they probably could tweak the rule for most employers, but for employers who, who self-insure, self-insure is when if you get sick, your employer just pays for your claim directly rather than working with an insurance company to do it. Oh. Um, for employers who self-insure, it's far from clear that the compromise is the way the Supreme Court laid it out actually is something that, there, that the federal government is allowed to do. Oh. I, um, didn't, I didn't realize there was such a thing as self-insurance. So if I work for one of those companies, I just basically bring them the bill when I get sick or when I need to go to the doctor? I mean, normally what they'll do is they'll, they have what's called a, a third-party administrator, uh-huh. which is an insurance company that sort of handles the administrative side of that. Okay. So for you, the employee, it winds, up lo- it winds up looking just like if you had a regular insurer. Right. But the difference is that instead of you paying premiums to the insurance company and then the insurance company pays your medical bills, if you work for a self-insured employer, then... It's your comp. It's your employer who's paying your medical bill. Okay. Wow. Uh, and and so in a case like that, uh, I guess someone would have to. A woman would have to go and and ask, for, you know, to to be compensated for her contraception uh, on a case by case basis. Um, if I'm understanding yeah, I mean, the it, concern, it, it, there's some. Com- yeah, I mean, there's some real complications with self-insured employers. You know, and, and the government lays them out in, in its brief. Um, but, you know, but my point is that, like, part of this problem with the compromise is that, you know, even if everyone thought it was great, it's not clear that it's legal under existing law. Gotcha. I mean, if we had a functioning Congress, Congress could probably pass a law and make it legal, but we, we don't have a functioning Congress. If they wanted to clear it up, they could. Obviously, they don't want to. Uh, and I know i got to let you go here, Ian, but uh, since the death of Scalia, very quickly, it, it seems like... The justices are now trying very hard to avoid uh, four to four splits on cases, coming up with unique yep. ways to, to decide them. Uh, why would that be important to them, to, to Justice Roberts, to not have a, a four to four split on these cases and, and uh, you know, refer to whatever the lower courts decided? And frankly, why is this important uh, to the rule of the, you know, the law of the land in general to not have four to four splits? Well, in this particular case, there would have been considerable chaos because mm-hmm. you have a split amongst the lower court. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want a situation where a woman has one set of rights in Texas and another completely different set of rights if she goes across the border into Arkansas. Right. And so in this case, it was, you know, they needed to do something to maintain some kind of uniformity because otherwise you're going to have chaos, you're going to have people intentionally bringing cases in jurisdictions where they think they could win. You could potentially have one employer that's that's subject to 
one court order in one jurisdiction saying that they have to comply with the law, and a different court order to different jurisdictions saying they don't have to comply with the law. Um, and that leads to some chaos that, you know, the, the mechanism that we normally have to sort out that chaos is the Supreme Court of the United States. But if the Supreme Court isn't there, um, I think the Supreme Court just wanted to avoid that confusion. Have you seen any movement, by the way? I haven't seen any uh, in regard to either uh, Merrick Garland uh, or, or seating anyone on the court uh, to replace Scalia. Or are the Republicans really going to be successful in holding out uh, on a seating a new justice until the you know next year at earliest when there's a, a new president? Yeah, I mean, they are pretty dug in. I mean, there, there are some who have said that if Hillary wins, then they might confirm Garland during the Link Duck um, <laughs> session. But you know, they are they are really dug in right now. Just un- unbelievable and causing chaos. And I do wonder if Justice Roberts or any of the other uh, Supreme Court justices are going to speak up and say, you know what, Congress, we need a new justice here. We can't keep doing this. Any any signs that any of the justices are willing to send that message to Congress? I mean, I, I don't know that it would matter. Really? They wouldn't even listen to Justice Roberts if he said, hey, guys, we need a ninth justice here. You know, I mean, he he is welcome to try. Okay. well, I wish he would because we could use it. Uh, Ian Milheiser, constitutional law expert uh, from Center for American Progress, author of Injustices. The Supreme Court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. I suspect we'll be talking about this case again in the future, along with others, as uh, the court tries to uh, get through this uh, current mess. Check out Ian's work, of course, at thinkprogress.org and on the Twitters at imilheiser. Ian, always great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. A quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast, and we'll try to make sense of what the hell happened with Democrats at their state convention in Nevada over the weekend. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Yes, they were burning down the house in Las Vegas over the weekend. They had to uh, even uh, call out the county sheriffs, apparently. 
at the Democratic State Convention uh, at the uh, in in Vegas at the Paris Hotel. Get to that in just one moment, and some of the uh, remarkable audio uh, video that came out of that. Uh, rather contentious convention, and I think that might be an understatement, Desi Doyen. Yeah, as, I would uh, say yeah. that contentious is, is a good word for it's it. It's a nice way to put <laughs> it. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, speaking of uh, Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act and Bernie Sanders, he, of course, is still the uh, long shot to overcome frontrunner Hillary Clinton to win the Democratic nomination, but his health care plan remains the most popular of the three remaining candidates, of all of them, uh, of Sanders, Clinton, and Trump. This according to results of a new Gallup poll that was published on Monday, just out. Sanders has, of course, called for replacing Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, with a federally funded program providing insurance for all Americans, single-payer health care, as it's called, uh, for everyone. According to this new poll from Gallup, survey uh, participants were asked for their opinions about three different scenarios concerning Obamacare. 58 to 37 percent said they would like to see the uh, 2010 health care law replaced with care for all, as has been advocated by Sanders, 58 to 37. Very popular. That's a big majority. Yes, That's almost 60 percent. Correct. Uh, and uh, so that was the most popular of the three scenarios when it came to repealing the Affordable Care Act, as Donald Trump has called for. That also got a majority, a bare majority, 51 to 45 percent expressed support for doing away with it entirely. Although I suspect a lot of those people were people who also would like to see uh, uh, to see it replaced by Medicare for all, a single payer plan and so forth. Uh, let's see. So that was 51 to 45 percent. And in terms of keep, keeping the health care law as it is, just 48 percent said that they would support that. Forty nine percent said they oppose that. And uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, has uh, by and large advocated for the law to remain in place as it currently exists, according to Politico here. Uh, who reports on this uh, Gallup poll. So of the three candidates still in the in the running for president of the United States, at least in the Republican and Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders still has by far the most popular health care uh, uh, proposal out there. Gallup did not attach any of the candidates names to the separate questions. They didn't say, you know, as Sanders has advocated. They just asked, you know, what are you in favor of or against when it comes to Obamacare? And they spelled out these three scenarios. So that plan is still popular, uh, although Bernie Sanders continues to have trouble uh, catching up to Hillary Clinton at the uh, at the polls, despite winning a whole bunch of states of late. Uh, but because of the way the Democrats give out their delegates on a proportional basis, it's very, very difficult for Bernie Sanders to catch up. We talked about it a little bit last week and the fact that, uh, uh, you know, San the Sanders campaign and some of his supporters are now conceding they are unlikely to overtake Hillary Clinton by the end of the process in mid-June, by the end of the primary process in mid-June, but they hope to win over the superdelegates and make the case that, hey, you know what, uh, since Super Tuesday, Bernie Sanders has won the majority of states in the primary and caucus process, if, in fact, that wins, by the way, if that happens over the next uh, 
a few weeks here coming up. That's the case that uh, they say, anyway, they hope uh, they hope to make. Meanwhile, in Nevada, where you may recall way, way back in what? When was it? February, March? No, it must be February, I think. The, the original the Nevada caucus, it was the fourth state up for the Democrats. And at the time, Hillary Clinton won the Nevada uh, caucuses. It was very close, but she won. Uh, and then they had a, a delegate. They had county conventions around the state, at which time uh, Bernie Sanders looked set to pick up two of Hillary Clinton's delegates. And then came the state convention over the weekend at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas, where they chose delegates to go to uh, to go to the national convention. Uh, Democratic convention in Philadelphia in July and kind of all hell broke loose. Chaos broke out at the Nevada Democratic convention. And I've been trying to make sense of it, putting the bits and pieces together from uh, from reports that have been from news reports that have been out there and from uh, people who were there and video reports that were taken during this chaos. We'll play some of this uh, chaos for you in a bit. But what was going to happen over the weekend was uncertain, as the Las Vegas Sun uh, reports it. Because, uh, well, back in April, Sanders had turned out more of his supporters to those county conventions, even though Clinton had won the popular vote back in February at the caucuses. So he was supposed to have more delegates that were going to show up at the state convention over the weekend. Based on the presidential preference of convention goers, Clinton ended up winning seven of the delegates that were available on Saturday, while Sanders won just five in uh, two different categories of delegates that were available. And this really gets kind of weedy, and I'm going to try to stay out of these local uh, or state uh, you know, party uh, politics as far as how these uh, delegates are apportioned. But what it means is that out of 35 pledged delegates that Nevada will send to the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia this summer, 20 now will support Hillary Clinton, whereas 15 will be supporting Bernie Sanders. And those were the numbers that were sort of guesstimated coming out of the Nevada caucuses originally back in February. Uh, At the time, the apportioned uh, uh, delegates uh, were given out right after the caucuses. 13 went to Hillary Clinton, 10 went to Sanders, but now it's 20 to 15 uh, as far as who's going to go to the national convention. That is supposedly final, although there may be a, uh, a fight over those delegates at the National Convention, at least based on what went on in Vegas over the weekend. OK, so as the uh, as the Sun reports it in total, uh, let's see, 1,693 delegates and alternates showed up to support Clinton on Saturday at the uh, at the convention, the state convention, while just 1,662 turned out for Sanders. But that happened after uh, some uh, some delegates that the uh, Sanders supporters had put forward were essentially disregarded, disallowed to uh, to participate in the voting. Their credentials were stripped. According to state party representatives, uh, about 58 of those 64 Sanders supporters, uh, they feel they were wrongly denied delegate status. 58 of them were denied because they were said to have not been registered as Democrats. 
and therefore they didn't get to participate. Eight Clinton supporters were also denied delegate or alternate status at the uh, at the state convention for similar reasons, according to the party. Uh, so without that uh, majority, uh, these delegates that Bernie Sanders was hoping to pick up, those two extra delegates, ended up going back to Hillary Clinton. And then when there was a, a, a vote on this and whether they should uh, allow the rules that allowed these Bernie Sanders delegates to be removed, uh, to, to not be allowed to vote in, uh, in the convention, all hell broke loose. The chair of the state Nevada of the uh, state Democratic Party, Roberta Lang, uh, held one of these uh, voice votes uh, to approve the rules. And, well, the, you can you can listen for yourself uh, to what happened when she held this vote. I They sound upset. You think? So the eyes, the eyes had it. It is a not, it is not debatable, and the measure passed. I'm not so sure the eyes had it in that uh, in that voice vote. Uh, my hearing's not great, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure there was uh, a, a lot of uh, no votes. Uh, well, things sort of went downhill from there, and one of the reasons they were trying to uh, block the rules from being passed was because of these uh, Sanders delegates who were left out. Uh, and the Sanders supporters say that they should not have been left out. Eventually, as AP reported, organizers of the Nevada State Democratic Convention say they had to rush to wrap up the event after it went several hours long and uh, and security became an issue. State party officials said authorities at the Paris Casino in Vegas informed them around 10 p.m. Saturday night that they could no longer provide the necessary security for the event that had become unruly, where tensions between Bernie Sanders supporters and party leaders flared up, according to AP. The convention was scheduled to end at 7 p.m., but around 10 p.m., uh, they said, hey, you guys, y- y'all got to wrap this up. And uh, Roberta Lang, once again, the, uh, the, the head of the Nevada Democratic Party, uh, boy, howdy, did she wrap it up with another one of these votes that ended with her banging the gavel and rushing off the stage. So that went well. 
Uh, mind you now, all of this, uh, well, let's, let's play this. Uh, then the, when the sheriffs uh, were called, they came marching into the room down the front uh, to the podium to, to separate the, uh, the booing crowd there from the, uh, from the party leaders. Uh, and here's some uh, video as that was all unfolding. that going how's that working out for you uh kind of amazing mind you all of this uh was over what would eventually be two delegates now uh hillary clinton currently with those two delegates has a a 282 delegate lead of pledged delegates over bernie sanders um and uh, had had that not happened, those two delegates would have gone to Bernie Sanders and she would have had a lead of 278 delegates. So we're talking, you know, about uh, two delegates uh, difference here that that that's apparently what this entire fight uh, came down to. Uh, the state would have still gone, Nevada still would have gone to Hillary Clinton by uh, 18 to 17 when it comes to delegates. Uh, instead, it went 20 to 15 in favor of Hillary Clinton. So uh, it all reminds me, frankly, of, of what we covered on this program and at bradblog.com back in 2012 when you had the, uh, the, the Ron Paul folks at the conventions got very, very angry at the party apparatchik at, you know, a bunch of conventions. At the state level conventions. At, at the state. Well, at the county, at the state and then at the uh, at the national convention where they also took the fight there. And we had a very similar scene play out back in 2012 when then you. U.S. House Speaker John Boehner was the chairman of the Republican convention, and they had a similar fight over whether uh, Ron Paul delegates should be seated at the uh, at the national convention. Here's what that sounded like. It'll sound very familiar. Without objection, the previous question is ordered. The question is on the adoption of the resolution. All those in favor signify by saying aye. All those opposed, no. The resolution is adopted without objection. The motion to reconsider is laid on the table. <laughs> so why do they even have these voice votes if they're not going to actually pay attention uh, to what to what comes of them? That's exactly why they have these voice I, votes, because then right. that way yeah. they can say it is whatever they say it is, yep. because the opinion of the chair is what carries. Yeah. And if they actually bothered to count, they would probably have a different problem. So for all of this uh, uh, sturm and drang we've seen this season about uh, about the Republican convention being a contested convention, now it looks like that won't be that. Donald Trump will most likely get all the delegates he needs to win a majority on the first ballot. And that's said and done with. But maybe we're going to be looking at some uh, some kind of trouble come uh, come July for the Democrats at their convention. 
Over the weekend, before that mess broke out in Vegas, uh, AP was reporting that Democratic Party leaders are upping the pressure on Bernie Sanders to drop his presidential campaign. They are alarmed at his continued presence and that it is undermining efforts to beat the presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump and again win the White House. They quote Senator Dianne Feinstein from out here, our senator from California, saying, I don't think they uh, I don't think they think of the downside of this. She said uh, she's a supporter of uh, frontrunner Hillary Clinton, and she's a broker of the pro- post-primary peace between Clinton and then-Illinois Senator Barack Obama back in 2008. Feinstein says it's actually harmful because she can't make, because Hillary Clinton can't make that general election pivot the way she should, and Trump, she says, has made that pivot. Now, mind you, that's Senator Feinstein from California, where we have not even voted yet. We're not going to vote for another three weeks. So you got a California senator saying uh, Bernie Sanders should pack it in this 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 all this voting that's going on, all of this democracy, all of these elections that is somehow dangerous for Democrats. Well, you know, then hold all the primaries at the same time, hold them all in February if that's what you're worried about. In the meantime, there's a lot of us, myself included, who have not gotten to participate in the primary process. We would like to vote. Sorry about that, Senator Feinstein. Sorry that's inconvenient for and, you. Correct. And if, by the way, if uh, Sanders wants to get out, if he feels he should get out, if he feels that's the best thing for the party, he's certainly able to do it. But he is not doing that. He is staying in as of now anyway. He has said he's going to stay in. So, you know, for the Senator Feinstein to be uh, saying he ought to get out and people shouldn't be allowed to vote out here in California in her own home state, I find that, frankly, a bit uh, kind of offensive, to be frank. Sorry if it doesn't work out the way you want it to work out, but I think people should be able to vote. You scheduled an election. Let's hold the election, not just a, a beauty contest. By the way, just for a reminder... Uh, Clinton has uh, largely resisted calling on Sanders to drop out uh, because uh, she, her aides and her supporters noted that she fought her 2008 primary bid against Barack Obama well into June. So let's all just uh, sort of keep that in mind. The voting continues and the voting will continue on Tuesday in two more states. And we've got some information on that coming up. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast trying to make sense of it all. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Shining. Yeah, keep shining. Blue moon. Shine on Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you on Tuesday. Democrats in Kentucky will head out to the polls once again to participate in the presidential primary cycle. 
Uh, you might remember that uh, before uh, Steve Bashir, the, the state's former Democratic governor, before he left office, he issued an executive order allowing former felons to uh, to be voters again, welcome them back into the fold. And as soon as Matt Bevin, the Tea Party Republican uh, governor, who, uh, took over, he uh, rolled that back, uh, kept uh, the felons from being able to uh, to to you know become voters once again, register and vote. So those uh, former felons will not be able to participate, apparently, in uh, in Kentucky's primary election. That is one of two states that will have their uh, primary uh, on uh, on Tuesday. Uh, meanwhile, and, and the other one is Oregon. I'll get to that in a second. Meanwhile, uh, the Senate up in Delaware last week by a big margin passed a bill that would would allow felons to vote without having to first pay fines related to their of, to their offense. By a 16 to 4 tally with one absent, senators sent the uh, proposal on to the House of Representatives and where it is expected, I believe, to pass. In January, uh, in his State of the State address, Governor Jack Markle, a Democrat, called for separating the ability to participate in democracy from the ability to pay. So in other words, these are uh, former felons. They've served their time in jail. They may still owe some restitution uh, to their victims or fines or whatever it is. Um, and and they're not able to vote in Delaware. They're not able to register until those fines are done with. But the uh, governor said we need to do away with that and separate the ability to participate in democracy from the ability to pay. Like, you know, a poll tax. Currently, most felons in Delaware can vote as soon as they meet, quote, all financial obligations and restitution required by the sentence. According to the Delaware Code, in 2013, the General Assembly passed a bill eliminating a five-year waiting period before felons could vote. But the financial obligations continued. So uh, in Delaware, where this uh, bill uh, looks like it's uh, going to be approved and then signed by Governor Markle, uh, who supports it, fines would not end. They'd still have to pay their fines, but they would uh, generally would no longer uh, be prohibiting prohibited from uh, from being able to vote. Senator Margaret Rose Henry of Wilmington, Democrat, uh, called the proposal the right thing to do. She says every one of us who lives in Delaware, we live in a free society and 90 percent of the people who are in prison are going to come out. And in order for them to be productive and be able to do a good job, they need to be able to vote because that makes you feel that you're part of society in which you live. Uh, Senator uh, Republican Senator David Lawson, he objected. He argued the legislation would take power away from judges and teach people that there are few consequences for their actions. And the uh, the vote has been applauded by voting rights uh, advocates and so forth. So that's some good news in Delaware. Not so good for the uh, for the voters of Kentucky who will be heading to the polls on Tuesday, uh, at least for the Democrats, only Democrats will be voting in the I don't know if I mentioned that in the uh, in the primary on Tuesday in Kentucky. Meanwhile, the state of Oregon also has its primary on Tuesday. And oh, I should say in both of these cases uh, in Kentucky and in Oregon, very little pre-election polling. So we really don't know much about what will be the outcome. Uh, looking at the existing polling in Kentucky last year. Uh, what is this? June of last year, Clinton was ahead by 44 points, according to a PPP poll. And then according to a PPP poll at the beginning of March, that's it. I mean, two polls beginning of the PPP poll in uh, in March in Kentucky. 
Clinton was still up, but but only by five points back in early March. Uh, that was before Indiana, before West Virginia, before the momentum that uh, I guess uh, Bernie Sanders has uh, maybe obtained from those states. So we will see what happens, but we don't really know. Uh, the good news also in Kentucky is that much of the state has moved to paper ballots, to hand-marked paper ballots. Yes, they are still counted by computers, which either count them correctly or incorrectly. Nobody knows unless they bother to actually count them. But a lot of the state still uses 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting system. So if the election is very close in Kentucky, there will be almost no way to tell who actually won, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. So let's hope for a blowout either way. Either way, let's hope for a, a, a blowout. I know that's the election official's prayer. All right. In Oregon. Uh, yes. All paper balloting in Oregon. That's the good news. The bad news that I'm not crazy about is that it is all vote by mail. So people drop them in the mailbox or at uh, uh, drop off locations for these polls. I know that before you start sending cards and letters, I know the folks in Oregon love their vote by mail. I'm not a fan. Uh, I think that the mailbox is the ultimate black box. Uh, but I know that they like it. And uh, so uh, they've been voting now for uh, many days, uh, many weeks, in fact. And the uh, results will be optically scanned by computers. Yes, in Oregon as well uh, on Tuesday. And we'll find out how that went. Also, not much polling in Oregon to go on either. Um Fox 12 KPTV shows Clinton with a, uh, a pretty good lead, 48 to 33, a 15-point lead. But that is it. That's it as far as statewide pollings that I was able to find. Uh, PredictWise, which is a site that aggregates the betting market predictions, they are bullish on Bernie Sanders and his chances of winning. Uh, they predict that uh, he has a 75% chance of winning the Oregon primary. So there you go. Take that for what it's worth. Oregon has 61 delegates at stake. Um, Kentucky has 55 delegates at stake. But once again, in both states, they'll be given out proportionally. So uh, unless there is a huge blowout one way or another, it's not expected to change the uh, the delegate count all that much between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. The last bit of good news here for uh, Oregon is that a whopping 111,000 Oregonians have uh, gave themselves a say in the upcoming presidential primary by changing their voter registration to Democrat or Republican. That figure dwarfs registration change numbers during the presidential uh, during the uh, Barack Obama 2008 primary campaign by more than threefold. And the bulk of those voters made the switch. Uh, they made the switch in uh, early April before the primary deadline. Uh, and the bulk of them have switched to uh, the Democratic Party. Of the 111,000 voters who joined the two major parties this year, more than three-quarters of whom were previously non-affiliated, the biggest chunk, about 84,000, went to Democrats. And so uh, local officials uh, or, or local experts suggest that may be uh, an encouraging point for Bernie Sanders. Also, 100,000, more than 100,000 new Oregon voters were added to the rolls this year through April. That's up 42 percent from the same time back in 2008. So big numbers. Nearly half of those uh, were due to the uh, 
uh, to Oregon's new motor voter law, which automatically signs up drivers to vote when they get a new driver's license. Um, and uh, most of those voters, again, went to the Democrat. What that will mean? Well, we will find out in the next day or three. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to Ian Milheiser of Think Progress Justice, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. Use hashtag Bradcast. Drop me email. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.